away we go with another edition of the Stampede Wrestling Show. Welcome, everybody. October 19th to Heartbeat Radio with Bruce Hart. I'm your guest host, Johnny Mantell. I got Bruce on the air with me. Oh, I'm sorry I dropped him off. Uh, I want to welcome everybody tonight. We've got a great big show for you. Uh, some big names, Butcher Vachon and Baron Von Roski are going to be on with us. But i got to say something right off the bat uh, to everybody out there. Our thoughts and prayers go to the family of Dr. Ken Ramey Ram- that uh, passed away this past week, a longtime manager, Tennessee, Frisco, a lot of places handled the interns, the uh, medics. Um, anyway, thoughts and prayers. To everybody here at Heartbeat Radio that's uh, involved uh, uh, in the wrestling business, we want to say we think of you. We're giving your thoughts and prayers, and we're going to get right to it. Hey, I got Bruce Hart on the air with me now. Bruce, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, Johnny. Uh, uh, thanks for uh, coming aboard tonight. And uh, I finally got through. I was having some connection problems there, but uh, but yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm really uh, happy to have uh, a legend like uh, Paul Vashon on tonight. So I'm hoping uh, we can engage him, get some uh, stories on Montreal and uh, legendary uh, promotion back in the day. And he and his brother Maurice Mad Dog uh, were a big part of it. And uh, they, of course, have the roots, you know, back in the days absolutely well i'm going to tell you we're going to we're going to go right to the phone lines i know that uh uh, paul butcher vachon's holding so we're going to bring him right on the air with us uh uh good night butcher how are you how are you tonight i'm uh, i'm very good uh thank you very much for asking and it's nice to hear you guys and and bruce I haven't uh, spoken to you for a while but it's always nice to talk to yeah yeah anybody my dad always, yeah, my dad always had uh, very highest regard for you and uh, Morris, you know, and you guys were, uh, I, I was a little kid back then when you guys were up in Calgary, and uh, my dad uh, later on was always, uh, you know, uh, proudly uh, saying, you know, I, I I had those guys up in Calgary back in the day, he was always dropping your names, and uh we had a whole bunch of the French Canadian guys in there afterwards, guys like uh, Joe Poisson and Martel and uh, guys like that. And my dad was always uh, uh, I had uh, Maurice and Paul up here back in the back back in the day. You know, they were pretty good boys. <laughs> he always yeah, had a well, fond regard. Mon- Mon- Montreal and and uh, Calgary. We're really uh, reading, reading places for professional wrestlers. Oh, I mean, yeah. Uh, it was it amazing how many uh, came out of there. And uh, it's funny uh, how many of them uh, would go from Montreal and then they'd uh, wind up in Calgary. And uh, almost every one of them had a, a good a stretch in Calgary the name you know so many of the names uh, come up the Frenchie Martins and they all had different names back then you know the Don Gagne's and uh, yeah. Michelle and Rick Martel and uh, 
my dad had that bunch from uh, the Maritimes too, like uh, Leo Burke or the, the Beast and Rudy and Bobby and all of that bunch, you know. But uh, he, uh, yeah, he always had uh, you know extremely high regard, and uh, you guys are all pretty good workers too. That was the nice thing about it, you know. Uh, you guys, uh, you know, were uh, professional in and out of the ring, you know, and uh, you know it was nice to see uh, a lot of you guys. Uh, go on to uh, big things in the States, too. You know, you guys are always uh, very well respected and uh, all over the world, you know, so it's... Uh, we, we, were, we were, Mad Dog and I, we were both pretty young when we first went up to Calgary work, working... Oh, yeah, school. you guys would have been just, yeah. uh, my dad would have said, young pups, and I, I remember yeah. that old, my dad, uh, not to digress, I think that, uh, that other old hapless the uh, great Antonio was up here around around, <laughs> around that yeah, time. That I think, if I'm not mistaken, my dad. I think the only thing that seemed to stick in his mind about Antonio was some Mabel party they pulled on him. And uh, oh yeah, my goodness, yes. And uh, <laughs> I, I was a bit too young to <laughs> be uh, around it at that time, but I I heard about it after, and my dad said that. Antonio was so uh, distressed that he insisted that the police lock him up in the, <laughs> in the jail cell cause for his yeah, own protection. Yeah. There, you know, he was. Uh, I'm not sure if he ever recovered from that or. <laughs> well, I, I guess. I, at first, we thought he'd never recover, but, but uh, yeah. yeah, well, a lot of the guys, and I was only. Uh, Actually, when I first worked for Stu, your dad, uh, I was only 20. Uh, I was oh, yeah. only 20 years old, and, and Mad Dog was only 28, actually. We were both yeah. uh, pretty young, and I was, I'd only been in the business for about a year and a half, maybe two years. And uh, I had uh, previously uh, wrestled in the Canadian, uh, for the Canadian Championship in Regina. Saskatchewan when wow. I was just 17, 17 and a half, and I, I won the silver medal uh, on points. The, the, I, if you got uh, if you got five bad points, you were eliminated. And and if if they had given me, I, I won uh, three matches uh, uh, by um, uh, by decision. So I already had three bad points and. On the last match that I had, if I had won by a pin, I, I would have been champion. But I, I actually I drew with the guy, and I could have only won in in in, in, the, in a pin, and I didn't. So in any case, that's beside the point. I had been out west, and you know what? Uh, I uh, I have three, I have seven children, and I've got three boys. And uh, they're all in Alberta right now, as a matter of oh, fact. Is that right? Uh, I, I, I remember, uh, I think it was Mike. Is he your kid? Or, uh, I remember there was a No, it's Mad Dog's kid. Yeah, I remember. My, my, I, uh, I met, yeah. I met uh, he was out here back maybe in the 80s. Uh, you know, I, I think he was around Edmonton, if I'm not mistaken. It seemed like a nice yeah, enough kid. Right. I never, I, uh, I wasn't sure if he was... 
even in the business, or he was. But he, he was he, he was down. in the business for a while, but he had quite a name to, to follow, you know. Oh yeah, and, and not easy. No, it, it's not easy, and you guys, you guys know that, and uh, having to follow Stu and everything. But uh, the, uh, my my three boys, uh, Mark, uh, Pierre, and Andre, they're all working on the pipeline out there in, in Alberta. They've been there for years. And, well, that's uh, good. Saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, quite familiar with the uh, with Alberta. Uh, Who are some I, of the guys? Uh, when you were breaking in out here, Paul, uh, who are some yeah. of the guys that were? Who are some of the other workers that were here? I, I was like a little oh, kid. Scott Brothers, for one. Oh yeah, George Scott and uh, Sandy and, and uh, Sandy, Sandy Scott, and I think um, um, uh, Mighty Ursus also. Oh yeah, the big Jesse Ortega. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Jesse, Jesse Ortega, and. There was, of course, Dave Rule was perennial over there. Oh yeah, and, old Dave uh, Rule. Uh, and uh, yeah, those uh, are. Uh, I know my dad had a. Uh, oh yeah, the old. Uh, yeah, he was the. Uh, zoo, he was had the promoter zoo up. Yeah, he he was my dad's buddy from the Navy or something like that. And, yeah, right. Yeah, those I are names that I I haven't heard for. For many years, there, there was. I know. I remember my dad always had some of the best French Canadians, old Tarzan Tourville or Tyler and Maurice yeah. Lapointe, and uh, yeah. I think, yeah. uh, if I'm not mistaken, he had uh, old uh, the Baylorjeans and the Tony Baylorjean and Adrian and Sean Baylorjean, and they were kind of strong men or something like that. They Paul Baylorjean. Yeah. Lift a horse or yeah. something like that. Yeah, I think and uh, Emil Coverly also. Oh, yeah, old Stan Stasiak, yeah. Yeah, yeah Stan he, Stasiak. Yeah, Emil the Cat yeah. Coverly and Tyler. Star, I think he became Tarzan Tyler later. Tarzan Tarzan Tourville and sure, we, yeah, we all went for we all went first. And of course, my first wife came. Don Jardine may have been Alberta. around at that time and. Uh, yeah, I remember yeah, a lot so, of those old Killer Kowalski was maybe around in and in around that time. He was, but yeah, those. Are, I, you guys had a couple of them from from Alberta too, of course, and some from some from Edmonton. And of course, they they had people from all over the U.S. and really come over to Calgary for 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 the winter. I remember. It didn't yeah. back in those days it didn't wrestle much in the summer, I don't think. Although we no. I remember the year we were there when we kept it going until July when we were all part of the stampede for God's sake. Yeah, I think my dad used to shut down for the summer like after Stampede Week and then Yeah. I think it was in the seventies he started running year round, he uh found it too hard to uh, shut it down and start it up again, you know, so he, but I remember that was, did you guys ever know old Abby when he was down in uh, Montreal or my dad had a pretty good run with him and I think old uh, Jack, Jack Britton uh, sent him out here. Oh yeah. And, uh, Abby oh, yeah. and uh, 
he was he was a, <laughs> a character, <laughs> old Abby. Yeah, know. oh yeah, yeah. Well, Always, if, uh, if, if you're well, if you're not a character when you first start in this business, you become one. You know. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's actually the greatest business in the world. You know, I, I of course nowadays after. Um, Six thousand wrestling matches. You got to figure. I started wrestling uh, when I was thirteen years old. Had countless amateur matches, and then uh, for thirty years I was a professional. And I wrestled all over the world in thirty-three different countries. And nowadays, I just had a birthday, and I'm seventy-seven. And nowadays, I walk around with a couple of canes. Because my back is all shot, and you know, it, you, okay. you really have to love this business. If I had known before I started that uh, I was going to wind up with a couple of canes, I would have done it anyway. It's <laughs> it, you got to be a bit crazy to be in this business, but it's worth it. I I, I never look back, and. Um, and of course, Mad Dog had the bad luck of after he had been out of the business. And he wrestled in it until his mid fifties. Actually, he was three times as tough as I was. And then he was working out one one morning, early in the morning, in 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 the Morins, Iowa, visiting his sister-in-law with his wife. And he was working out six o'clock in the morning, and some. Guy had been drinking all night. Just come over the hill and and uh, ran him over. Never stopped. And we almost lost him, but he lived. He lived for uh, twenty-five years after that. But, but yeah, he never. He never. Yeah. He he had to be tough. You know. He oh, never. Yeah, he he never looked back. He never felt sorry for himself or anything like that. And he yeah, went into the nice. walls. Visit with him at the WWE Hall of Fame induction, uh, yeah. 2011 or something, uh, down in yeah. Phoenix. I, yeah. I saw him, and uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, you know, nothing but gracious. You know, uh, you know, I was yeah. Yeah. happy to see them honor him while he was still alive. You know, and uh, but, yeah. but yeah, he he was. Uh, I've always uh, heard nothing but. Nice thing said about both of you guys. Uh, you know, always a lot of respect. And uh, I remember all those French Canadian guys that were breaking in in the uh, 70s and 80s up here. The guys like Rougeau, Jacques Rougeau, and Rick Martel, and uh, Gilles Poisson. And they all spoke very uh, reverentially of you guys. You know, you guys are sort of idols to them. You know, they seem to be very uh, respectful and. Uh, you guys sort of the uh, almost awestruck, you know. They talk about Mad Dog and Paul and the, Paul the Butcher, yeah. and you guys were sort of heroes of theirs, you know, and sort of uh, inspired them. So uh, that always sort of made an impression on me because I was happy to see those guys all, uh, you know, became pretty good, you know, top level stars too, you know. But they always seem to be inspired. You guys are sort of uh, two of the guys who. Uh, Kind of broke the ice and uh, you know launched that whole French Canadian uh, kind of. Uh, I think even old yeah. Pat Patterson had high respect for you guys. You know, I yeah. saw him down at WrestleMania a few times, and he was always 
talking, you know, I think he's probably around similar, uh, came up maybe just after you guys or right around that same time, but yeah, he always he, had a lot of regard for you, too. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah, well, Paul, this is this is Johnny Mantell, and I was telling Bruce earlier that you were the first professional wrestler that I slammed in a ring, and, and I know it's always been a great honor of mine to be able to say that, but you were in Los Angeles in 1976 and 77 when Leo Garibaldi broke me in, and you were a, you were a veteran at that time uh, helping that territory boom with crowds, and then you left there and went to Mobile with my brother Kenny, and I think you guys really started picking up that tor- territory as well. Yeah, well, that, that's something we learned early in life. You know, I mean, we, <laughs> we got a taste of that when we went when we went to, to Calgary. I remember uh, Stu Hart had his Booker uh, call us in Montreal. This was. I tell you what, it was like in in November in, in nineteen. I'm trying to think, nineteen fifty fifty eight. He he told us, and he and, and him him and the Booker talked to us. That was George Cotton, and he they said, "Listen, we we want you to come up here, and." If will and wrestle as lumberjacks. That was Stu's idea. Anyway. Of course, Mad Dog and I had been lumberjacks. Anyway, that was not no stretch of the Im- imagination. Uh, but uh, he says, I, I want you to have a beard and, and and send me some pictures right away because we're going to use you in January. So Mad Dog says, hell, we ain't got no beards. So Stu says, I don't care how you do it. He says, get some pictures taken with beers and send them to us so we can start the publicity right now. So Mad Dog and I, we we went to a theatrical agency in Montreal and we told them what we wanted. So, and there's still some of those pictures around. They they glued some beers onto us and put us in number jack shirts and took some pictures and and uh, and send them to Stu, and uh, Stu used it, and we used them for years and years. And uh, of course, by that time, I mean, we did keep pony beards, of course, but we started growing our beards right off. And by the time we got there in December, by the way, we went by train from Montreal. That was the best train ride I ever had across country. Uh, to Calgary and and uh, and Stu come pick us up at the railroad station, and I just want to speak a little bit of how rough shot he was. He had a nice big Cadillac, and it <laughs> it his front windshield when he got into the car, his front windshield would bust. I mean, he couldn't see out of it. And he said, well, how are you going to do this? So, you know, he went to his office up on the hill there, and uh, he, he got out and he put his hands and and washed the whole windshield with his spit. And, and uh, I, 
said, what kind of guy is this anyway, for gosh sake? But the, it did the job, and I have uh, fond memories not only of Stu doing that, but Stu down in the gym, and, in the dungeon, and also I, I seen him one time put all you guys in, into one big water truck that he had and hosed a whole bunch of boys down. I remember that like yesterday. I mean, he yeah. was in the... Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, we all get together in there, and 
tell great lies of how great we were, how many matches we won, and how much money we made, and all think, that, and it's it's great. I think we have a bit later <coughs> coming on uh, uh, one of those old amateurs, <coughs> Baron von Raschke, is supposed to be coming on yeah. tonight soon. Yeah, and I'm going to step in, everybody. You're listening to Heartbeat Radio here on a Sunday night. We have Bruce Hart, of course, and we have the legendary Butcher Paul Vachon. And I'm going to go to the phone lines and bring on one of the ultimate referees out there, Merv Unger. How are you tonight? Welcome to the show. Merv, are you there? Well, hello. Yeah, I must must not have him. I was trying to get over there to him. I... Yeah, he claims, uh, I believe he's an old associate from AWA days, uh, yeah. uh, an old yeah. friend of Maurice and Paul's. So. Yeah, 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 he is. Well, listen, uh, uh, we can talk about something else while you guys locate him. I mean, it's easy to get lost out here in, in cyberspace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I was... I was old Buddy Wolf doing these days, Paul. I uh, I saw him at CAC uh, maybe when my dad was still alive, and I think yeah. was maybe with you. And but it seemed yeah. like a nice I, guy. I, actually, I, I haven't heard from uh, from Buddy Wolf for a long time, and I I remember being at the CAC with your dad and and Buddy Wolf. That's uh, yeah. I think that was the last year my dad. I think my dad. Passed away, uh, maybe. Yeah, he was slowing down. After that. And uh, yeah, I remember he, he had a, he was very, uh, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yourself and and Buddy Wolf and Danny Hodge and a few of those guys. He had a nice yeah. visit with uh, a bunch of you guys. And, uh, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, and, and I was wondering what had happened to old Buddy. I hadn't heard from him or heard much about well, him since. As far as as far as I know, as far as I know, he's still around and he lives uh, around Minnesota in there, uh, Saint Cloud, I think that's where he lives. And uh, of course, uh, it, it's nice to reminisce about all the old time shooters and, and 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 like that. But professional wrestling is, you know, and. Is what makes you your living. You know, I, it's nice to know that really how to wrestle and wrestle amateur, come up with titles and like Von Raschke and Mad Dog and and the few of us have, but that's not what makes you a living. You know? and, yeah, some of them and, made a nice transition from amateur to pro, and yeah, other amateurs yeah. never never did. You know, they weren't cut well, out for it. Or, no, that's right. They, they 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 can't look past their nose. You know, I mean, it's fine. It's okay. Not everybody that was an amateur wrestler should become a professional wrestler. But those that can make the transition, at least they make a living. You know, as I said before, me, I I, I remember standing on. Uh, on a street and on, on a Saturday night in Richford, Vermont. This is about 12 miles from where I was raised on a farm in Quebec. And, uh, watching through the window of a of a furniture store on a round 
about a 10-inch TV and watching brother Mad Dog wrestle. He was only 20. I saw him wrestle television, for God's sakes, and I decided right then, I was 12, and I said, that's what I'm going to do when I get big, you know, if I get big, of course. But Who was the uh, so promoters back there? Was that Eddie Quinn, or was that before him? Or No, 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 that was Eddie Quinn. Yeah, Eddie Quinn. Was Eddie, yeah. He'd, he'd come up from Boston. Or, yeah, he was a cab driver. He was, he was a gopher for Paul, Paul Bowser. I've been the promoter. Yeah, so my yeah, my dad told me he knew old Eddie Quinn before, like back in the 40s or something. He That's right. worked for Toots and Paul Bowser. Hey, let, no, hey, let, let me sneak this in. I think I got Merv on the lines. Merv, are you on there with us? I'm here. There he is. Hey, Merv, this is the butcher. Nice to hear from you again. I've been listening since the beginning of the show and brings back a lot of good memories from the old days. <laughs> How are you, yes, Merv? Nice, uh, nice to hear your yeah. voice, and thanks for coming on. Thank you. We're, I we're, I love going to the Cauliflower Alley Club because I spend most of my time with Butcher. They're usually sitting at his table where he's selling his books, and uh, yeah, he is quite a go. noted author. I think a lot of people don't know that he's written a series of books, <laughs> and he hasn't talked about that yet. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, that's all right. I... <laughs> Um, nowadays, I do, I do fairs. I, my wife and I built a house in the woods, and uh, after we built it, we sat there and uh, looking at the mountain across the valley. And I said, "Well, this is very nice, but uh, after having a, an active life as a professional wrestler all over the world, I'm going to sit here and look at this mountain for the rest of my life." And uh, I was only 55, and I said, "The hell with this." So I started doing fairs, believe it or not. As, uh, as all of you know, modern professional wrestling started in, in the, not in the circus, but in the local fairs all over, all over the South. And they used to have a, a hat, hat tent that they called where they had wrestlers and bars, and they would come up and challenge all the people to, to last five or ten minutes and everything. So uh, and now I do fairs uh, during the summer, and uh, I I really enjoy traveling, but I only do it like in the in the northeast of the United States and New Hampshire and Vermont. I used to go all the way up to um, uh, Pennsylvania and and Massachusetts, but nowadays it costs too much for gas. I, I, I used to, I used two trucks. I mean, two pickup trucks. I pulled them together, and uh, after, uh, you know, I used to do 14 fares. Now I'm down to 10, and uh, it still costs a lot of money. But I, at least I, I move around, and uh, and every once in a while they have wrestling, and they in, they invite me to come and make an appearance, and. Blah blah blah, and uh, I I enjoy it. Uh, although I have a hard time watching the, the wrestling that they have now. I mean, I should I shouldn't say that because it sounds like sour grapes. The the the, the wrestling world is not what it used to be. Uh, of course, we all know that, right? Well, 
Yeah. Well, there's one thing that I think uh, none of the wrestling fans know about uh, the Butcher, and that is as mean and tough a guy as a character as he was in the ring, that uh, I don't know if he still does it, but at Christmas he becomes Santa Claus in his uh, <laughs> local town. Well, I, 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 as a mom, Mary Montpelier, Montpelier, capital of Vermont. And uh, I, I was setting up in the mall. This is 15 years ago, mind you. And my wife and I, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, that's when Santa starts. And we were setting up our stuff in the mall for uh, for until Christmas. And the, the Santa that they had there, the son of a gun, was drunk. And he threw <laughs> up and he fell off the chair and Everything happened to him, and the manager of the mall said, Paul, he says, you've got to help me. He says, I, we're stuck. He says, we can't keep using this guy. He says, you got to. I said, I'll do it for tonight. And But I says, tomorrow you have to find somebody else. So I did it, and I, you know, lo and behold, I liked it. I mean, I still like it. I've been doing it for 15 years now. And uh, the next day, he said, well, you got the job. So I said, how much does it pay? And he said, well, how much are you paying for rent? And I was paying, I don't know, I, I don't remember. I won't mention the number because I really don't remember. But he said, we'll, we'll give it to you for free rent if you're Santa. But now they pay me a hell of a lot more. And I, I, have, a, I have a hell of a time with the kids. And... Um, you know they 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 don't know who's under the who's under the beard, and that's all right with me. I do it incognito, but I have a lot of fun doing it. And that's something. I think that's one for the book. You know, there's not many professional wrestlers that do the same thing they game anymore. Tell us a little more about your books, Paul. You have a number of them there that I think a lot of the fans would be interested in. Well. Uh, first of all, I wrote a trilogy of books to start with, and now I'm I'm working on the fifth one. The first trilogy was called uh, When Wrestling is Real. Now, uh, listen, and uh, I, I want to tell this to, to you guys, and I, I tell it to all the fans that are listening. I, uh, <clears throat> I once... Uh, I just happened to, late, to watch a late-time um, um, television program, a talk show, and Vince McMahon was on there, and they said, Mr. McMahon, uh, you know, you have the wrestling that's on on television, and you have it on when uh, children are watching, and he's, it's so violent and vile, you know, and he says, well, don't worry about it. He says it's it's a it's not real, you know. And then later on, <laughs> later on, I, I was channel surfing and I happened on the wrestling matches, and I saw just in time for Vince McMahon to pull his pants down and ask somebody kiss his butt on TV, and that's when I said, "Oh well, that's that's enough for me. I'm not watching that anymore." And and I said, who does he think he is? You know, all those years, we, all of us 
especially the guys on the line, we all protected the business. And he turns around, and because he's making billions with it, he tells everybody not to worry about it. It's all fixed. So I I wrote in my in my first three books about all the injuries that we suffered and all the, the guys that get hurt in the business and some of them die in the ring and stuff like that. It's real enough, for Christ's sake. Uh, pardon me, for God's sakes. Uh, you know, uh, it's... It's hard enough and real enough for me to be walking around with crutches, but still I enjoyed, as I said before, I enjoyed every minute of it, and uh, it's always nice to talk to guys that speak the same language as as we do. And yeah. and then uh, and then uh, a couple of years ago, uh, um, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, 23 years ago I married. Uh, a Marine Staff Sergeant who, who was, uh, I, I was uh, 55, she was 41. She had never been married before. And and uh, it seems like she was waiting for me. And, uh, and now uh, she's my soulmate, of course. And, and now more than ever, uh, uh, I appreciate the fact that and she knows what the heck's going on. She never uh, had seen a wrestling match in her life. And uh, But still, every year, I go to the CAC, and, uh, and Mad Dog and I got inducted in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in, in Amsterdam. There, too. And she comes with me, and I'm very happy. And the, the last book that I wrote, uh, although I started another one a couple of weeks ago, I don't know what that's going to be called, but the last book was called Wrestling with the Past. And uh, that's what we talk about, about how our life has been after, after wrestling. And I do fairs and festivals. I also do Santa. And all in all, you look back, and I'm amazed myself at the the variety of the life that I had and the, the people that I met, the the real, you know, I, uh, I think that I'm going to, probably my my next book will be, be called High-Class People That I've Met. I'm not sure, but that's what I'd like to do. I'm going to talk about, uh, about all the, all the top people that I know and not necessarily all from wrestling. But Stu Hart and his family, Stu Hart and Ellen are definitely, they're, they were definitely extraordinary people to me. Yeah. And they're, 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 oh, they are, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, not a, not, not, not a week goes by without me uh, thinking about what happened to us when we were out there and the people that we met. And, uh, you know, just, just off the top of my head, you know, I, I know um, I know Stu had the same regard for you guys, you know, and uh yeah. as I said yeah, before he always uh the guys there was a lot of guys that came out of Calgary and uh you know Stu had a soft spot for him whenever you know, uh when you guys went on to become big stars in the States Stu was always uh hey, I broke those two guys in, you know. <laughs> He's always uh <laughs> yeah. name dropping, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
I had them, I had them down in the dungeon when they were uh, just kids, you know. <laughs> oh, <I> thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was always, uh, but yeah, he he sort of was. Uh, he, he always had a lot of pride in the guys that went someplace after they left Calgary. You know, uh, you know, he, he always but, sort of uh, had a soft spot for him, or even guys like Fritz von Erich and Kaniski and some of those guys who were with yeah. him. Back in there when they were kind of young pups, you know, he always I had that old bastard Kaniski up here, <laughs> I had old uh, Johnny Valentine when he was just breaking in or whatever, you know. So fond of uh, dropping those names, you know, sort of like uh, it meant a lot to him, and he, he's always pretty proud of the guys that went on to become somebody after they left Calgary. So. Oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's really a bunch of them. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it, it boggles the mind how many guys that came from just about anywhere in the States and Canada and really got, really got their start there. I mean, I, I mean, if you want to, if you oh, yeah, really was... want to look at it, then I, I, that's really where I got my start. <laughs> yeah, and he had a. It, it seemed like for whatever reason he had a lot of the the Japanese and the black guys. He he yeah. told me a lot of them couldn't get work, but he even had old farts like Kenji and Mitsu Arakawa kind of got their feet. Working. Tokyo Joe. Yeah, Tokyo Joe, and I think even the fabulous Kangaroos, old Al Costello and Roy Heffernan, were sort of. Uh, I think it was one of the first places they came when they were getting their uh, their break, and he had a few of those <laughs> characters, old Bearcat Wright, and some of them too. You know, they were kind Pierre of... de Gaul. I remember, I remember Pierre de Gaul. I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, I, I I forget who the heck. I mean, I mean, I remember some of the guys, and I guess if we talk about it long enough, I remember some more of them. But and that that's. And that's really why we all get together at, at, at the CAC, and, and Martin will attest to that. I mean, we just get together, and and uh, even some of the new guys, you know, they we we don't seem to talk the same language than than, than they do. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, a lot of today's guys don't, you know, like to be uh, disparaging, but they don't seem to be. To have paid their dues, or you know, it was a big part of the business, just making the road trips and uh, you yeah. know, kind of paying your dues and all like that back in the day, you know. And uh, I think it made the uh, bond stronger. Everyone sort of had more respect for the guys who had, you know, uh, gone through all that. And back in those days, yeah, those guys, it's, it's incredible. I mean, when you when you really think of it, I mean, Calgary, we called it the loop, right? And yeah, every week, every week, we used to go around, we used to go around the loop and cover something like, I don't know, a thousand miles just going around yeah. the loop. And yeah, I think plus it was the rest of the wrestling matches. 1,500 miles or something. And yep. The, yeah, something like that. Sometimes pretty and, bad. Forty below and blizzards and <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, well nobody. There, was there were many, that. many. There were many, many road trips like that. Uh, you go from uh, Calgary to Edmonton on Tuesday and wrestle. 
drive all the way to Saskatoon and wrestle, then off to Regina, and then uh, over 500 miles to Calgary for Friday night. And I remember sometimes when uh, we were sitting in Calgary waiting for the crew to arrive in time for the show because they had left the previous night, but the blizzards were so bad that uh, yes. they just had to move down the highway very carefully and very slowly or even go in a coffee shop and try to wait it out. Yeah, I remember many a time calling Stu from somewhere like 500 miles and saying our the highway's closed. Come get us. And, uh, and, and you got to make the show. You know, you got to keep going. You know, until the police got the highway blocked, and uh, you'll be all right. Just keep going. You know. <laughs> I, uh, I I remember I remember coming. Regina, so we could, you know, this was Tuesday night, right? Because uh, wrestling in Calgary was Friday night, right? So yeah, anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm, to make a long story short, I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to keep up with George Scott in my car. He, uh, I've got a car full, and he's got a car full, and he's way ahead of me, and I'm speeding like a son of a gun. And which was a foolish thing to do. I sometimes have nightmares about that because we're, we're traveling 85, 90 miles an hour on, uh, on the loop coming back from Regina. And any time a, a damn antelope or a deer would jump in front of you, it would have killed us all. But in any case, I'm, I'm really trying to reach to, to catch up with George Scott. He's ahead of me. And I'm going and I'm going and... I, my car started overheating, not overheating yet, but then just coming over the hill, um, I see way in the back, I'm going 85, 90 miles an hour, and there's a car catching up to us. So I said, well, Jesus, I better pull over. <laughs> and anyway, I pull over and kind of start doing you know, walking around the car, kicking the tires and stuff like that, and it's the RCMP. And he pulled up behind us, and his engine is over, over boiling, and he's he he's got his hat on, and he grabs his hat and throws it on the ground, and he he says, "I knew it was you guys, you son of a son of a gun, you now look at what you've done with." I said. Why? I said, why are you going so fast? He said, going so fast. I was trying to catch up to you, you son of a gun. Look at what you did. And he, I mean, he couldn't really give us a ticket because we were stopped. <laughs> he caught up to us. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of stories like that that we can tell about road stories. But uh, you figure that uh, nowadays, uh, Wrestling is a different business. I mean, I remember uh, changing cars every every couple of years because uh, after a couple of years, your car had two hundred thousand miles on it, and, and, and that and that wasn't only in Calgary. That was all the stories in the U.S. And uh, that, of course and, now, and nowadays they drive big, uh, fancy, custom motorhomes and. And got a driver and everything else, so it it makes it 
so much different on the guys today. They don't get that interaction, you know, like you're talking about 500 miles back to Calgary. I can tell you about a 600 mile trip from from home of Louisiana to Tulsa on a Monday night, and it's 600 miles one way. <clears throat> but yeah. you'd go on a carload of four or five guys, and you'd all make that trip. And part of that education of learning this business as a young guy in the business was those road trips and the knowledge you gained from there. So, oh yeah, you have the big some of the you know the veterans would be uh, schooling you, you know, and just talking. And most of the time, the rookies, myself included, would just you know, not say a word, just be listening to the uh, the veterans and you have an incredible uh, learning experience just hearing some of those old guys like Whipper Watson and uh, Luthez and uh, some of those old farts that uh, had been around Jim Wright, Carl Wright, and some of those old guys yeah. that had, had been uh, around since the 30s and 40s. And uh, it, it was... Uh, invaluable you know just hearing that and i think that's one of the things that's missing these days you know uh you know these young guys if they had the opportunity to travel down the highway and and hear people like paul and maurice and uh so many of those other guys you know uh it would be an invaluable opportunity just to learn a lot of little things that uh don't even uh Make it to the surface anymore, unfortunately, in the business. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then yeah. in those, in hey, those days wanna... on the road, you would take a couple of rings of garlic sausage, a loaf of bread, and a six pack of Pepsis, and that was the meals on the way to the next show. Now, wait a minute. Who the hell drank Pepsi on those trips? I never saw anybody drink Pepsi on those trips. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah, hey, well, let, let, always, let, me uh... jump, let me jump in here and just uh, tell everybody you're listening to Heartbeat Radio, and we are honored tonight to have the legendary Paul Butcher Bashan and Merv Unger on with us with Bruce and, of course, myself, Johnny Mantell. But I'm going to go to the phone lines and bring on another Hall of Famer with us tonight. Baron Von Roschke. Baron, nice to have you on the show tonight. Well, I'm glad I could finally break in. That was all very interesting. You went you went 500 miles to get a corned beef sandwich and a bottle of pop? Come on, in a blizzard? You were working in that town? <laughs> who, are you, who are you kidding here? <laughs> yeah. I suppose it was uphill both ways, too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, Baron, it's, it's very nice to talk to you again. My goodness, uh, I saw you at the um, Hall of Fame meeting. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I want uh, who should talk about who. I helped get inducted in the, in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in, in this past year. And who but the Baron von Raschke, by golly, a real a real German. I I remember Baron von Raschke saying, I used to handle the ring for Bern Gagne, and every time Van Dog would see me, he'd say, you ought, to be, you ought to be a German. You ought to be a German. And, and he, he said that for two or three days in a row, and finally, Baron, uh, I mean, and Jim Rashi said, but, but Mr. Vashani says, I am German. He said, so 
that notion that said you're going to wrestle as a German. And I think that's how he, that's how he, I mean, he's always been German and everything, but that's how he came up with the, with the idea of the, of the Baron von Rasti. And I, what a good idea that is. And I was very happy and very proud to do the induction in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame uh, with uh, Jim Rasti. And uh, we sat at the same table, and I told the same story I just told now. After all those records that he had in in the uh, amateur style wrestling and uh, and Greco Roman and everything, he wound up uh, working as the ringman for Vern Gagne, and he never did really make a living at it until. He became the Baron von Rasti. And that's all the people need to know. It's a dog-eat-dog world, as Mad Dog would say. That's right. Uh, and I was very proud and honored to have you introduce me at the uh, New Amsterdam uh, Hall of Fame. Thank you very much for that. And I'm very, very sorry. I haven't talked to you since the dog passed. I was at his funeral, and uh, uh, it was a very sad yeah. time in my life because he's the He's the man that I owe my whole career to. He's the one that taught me about being a, uh, everything about wrestling, all the timing and everything, and uh, yeah. um, mostly to keep my mouth shut in the back seat and listen. Yeah. Or well, to say it and play it in cribbage. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah. Well, uh, uh, talking about uh, cribbage, I think that um, they have a tournament every year. But they will, nobody will ever do what I did in, uh, in the cribbage tournament and the CAC because I am the one that won the first tournament. So I, I know that nobody else can win the first tournament because it's already over with. <laughs> but that would be hard to that would be hard to, to repeat. Yes. Yes, and and uh, you know. Uh, uh, it's it's a it's something that all wrestlers do. By golly, when you come down to an outcome, then we all play cribbage. Well, the thing is that yeah, sometimes you're on last, and you you get there to the wrestling matches at seven seven thirty, and you're not on till ten o'clock. So what do you do? I mean, I remember going to Japan with Mad Dog. We played. Uh, uh, we we were there for just two weeks and we played two dollars a game, and uh, and on the on the plane over uh, fourteen hours and on the train every day for two weeks we played in the dressing room we played cribbage, and when we got back to to the U.S. we came in uh, via the the, the Northwest uh, corridor we we stopped and in Seattle, and uh, our plane trip was over, and Mad Dog says, oh, by the way, but your, your, uh, all these games we played, you owe me $2. So <laughs> that's how much money we made playing cribbage, but we sure had a lot of fun. That was another get-rich-quick scheme, huh? <laughs> Play cribbage for money. <laughs> well, it's... So uh, listen, I, I, I meant to, I meant to say this nowadays. 
the, diff- the, the, the business is so different. And, um, now, it, it used to be all these territories that we would go to, and that's what was the background of our life, going from territory to territory. Now, it's, uh, wrestling as it is now, it's like a, a machine to print money, if you want to look at it that way, and, and I do, because simultaneously they have just one big show someplace, and they passed it on cable to every and any every or any home in the world that has the sixty seventy dollars to pay for it. When it's in Egypt or in Australia or in South America, in Europe or any anywhere all over the world, they collect their seventy dollars. So well, that over the years, it was television that really made wrestling because in the local territories, the people were able to follow their their own territory and view the matches and then go to the matches. But in the end, as much as TV made wrestling, TV is also killing the territories. Yeah, now, now, nowadays it, it is, yes. And, and you know what? When, I remember when TV first came out. I mean, here, anyway, uh, back in Quebec where I was from, it never came in until the 50s, uh, in the early 50s, and I guess about 10 years earlier in the States. But they, they used to say right off, oh, wrestling is going to kill, no, not wrestling, TV is going to kill wrestling, and it was completely the opposite because wrestling, TV took wrestling to a very localized place and spread it all over, and we made lots of money because of TV. We would wrestle on TV almost for free, right? I mean, I remember wrestling on TV for $10, $12, but then it would build up we would use the TV to build up the territory, and and that's the way it was made. And now, I'm afraid it's 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 killing it. Except that now they don't need all the wrestlers that we we used to have in those. They they need what? Do they need a hundred? Maybe, maybe not. And and I used to encourage anybody to to go into the wrestling business. Just follow your dream. I'd say, but I'm afraid to say that anymore because they really don't need it, any wrestlers anymore. Well, that's you know, you know, well, that's very true, but I'll tell you, you know, history has a way of repeating itself, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, when TV first came out and they had, uh, you know, the major networks, the three major that was TV, you know, wrestling yes. was on that, and it was sort of, it was very popular, and then... They sort of did something risque on TV, and it shut that national that national feed out. And we went to a bunch of local territories using local TV to promote. And I think yes. uh, you know history may repeat itself because you're absolutely right. Now, even though I know here in the state of Texas we have over a hundred promoters in the state of Texas promoting whatever kind of wrestling they call their wrestling. There's over a hundred of them here, and I know there's a hundred over a hundred in New York and. New Jersey and oh, all over the country. Over. They're all yeah. over. So there's a lot more wrestlers today, but there's less places for them to go and make a living doing it. And it's a well, dirty well, shame yeah. because there's some great kids out there today that really would 
would have fit back at least in my days when I started in the late 70s that would have became stars at that time that are working today that nobody even knows about. Yeah, and, except that none of them make any money. That's the whole yeah. thing. It's sort of feast or famine. You're either in making big money with fence or whatever, or you're yeah. having to work a day job and uh, work on weekends and get paid 10 bucks and uh, if yeah. that, you know, and help yeah. set the ring up and all like that, you know. It's, I, yeah, right. Well, I, well I, think too, I think, too, you know, that with with uh, the change of the times and, and uh, you know, I get in this argument all the time with some of the hierarchy of WWE and they talk about the great athletes of today and what great athletes they have. But, you know, this phone conversation tonight that we've had just to this point brings up the fact of, of Baron Von Roski's his amateur career. We talk about Butcher's amateur career and the, and the roots to the business and the amateur world. And today they, they may have some good athletes, but I don't know that they're any better or any more knowledgeable than the guys of the past. Well, I, I would say they're not half as good, you know. I'm not trying to, you don't like to sound like you're knocking the present, but I, I know we had, like you guys alluded to, the incredible uh, number of guys that came out of Calgary, and uh, there's only a few guys of today's roster in WWE that I, I would even include in the equation, you know, there's a few good, pretty good workers like Randy Orton and a few of them that I rate in that category, but there's a whole bunch of others that uh, wouldn't have even made the roster uh, even in the WWE 20 years ago. Quite honestly, they, they wouldn't have even crack the roster with people like Kurt Hennig and Dynamite Kid and Randy Savage and Brett and there's not there's not that many guys that are in that category today, in my estimation. There's only a few that are of that level. You know, the rest are, uh, you know, guys that would have been what we call jobbers or undercard uh, struggling to make the get even get hired back in the days. That's, that's my candid opinion of it. But I yeah well, I think that. I, 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 I'm thinking. I, I'd like to think. I, I'm. I'm sure that I'm not going to do it. But I'm thinking that, there's, uh, that maybe, especially in Canada, you could probably get a, a network that would carry uh, a, a show across Canada like we used to, like we did with Grand Prix Wrestling or with Stampede Wrestling, and and start over again from the bottom and just. Just tell the parents and, you know, all that bull that you see on the rest of the TV, well, you're not going to see this in, in professional wrestling as we do it. But call it what you want to. I don't know, uh, Canadian wrestling or whatever. I think that it, it can be done. And if somebody has a plan, uh, I would definitely support it, except that I'm not going to do it. I'm too old to do that anymore, but... No, we, I actually we, think we, we, uh, they should be the ones who are uh, most in favor of you know, doing something like that, because uh, of ultimate benefit to them, you know. And uh, yeah, when, it, 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 I think they need to re-sow the seeds at the grassroots, you know, and 
and you know, there's no substitute for uh, doing it. You know, if, if no. baseball or football or whatever had done what wrestling has done, uh, you know, they'd be dying on the vine too right now. My estimation. Yeah. Well, hey, let's move on let, about it. Yeah, let's let's go a different direction. I I know that uh, uh, Paul. I never had the opportunity to work the AWA territory, so let's uh, with uh, Mr. Unger and and Paul and. And bearing on, let's let's get a few stories or a few tales from the AWA days. Uh, Baron, you, you, that's your home. Come on, speak up. Well, uh, I'm the not good, the bad, and the ugly. ugly. <laughs> the good, yeah, very ugly. I mean, uh, there was a lot of guys that came from that territory that maybe went there and and got their break and got their start in this business as well. Correct. Uh, yes. Well, there, there are more than more than a few. Yes. Vern uh, uh, he used to, he broke me in. Uh, before me, he broke in uh, several other people, and then, uh, then he actually Blackjack Mulligan. Blackjack. I think Fritz sent uh, Blackjack Mulligan uh, up to Minneapolis. And, and, uh, and he told Vern to make a wrestler out of him, and Vern turned around and picked Mad Dog and I, and he said, here, teach this kid that, uh, everything that you can. And I, I, I would go down. As a matter of fact, yeah, uh, Jack Mulligan uh, do the ring uh, for Vern. And after that, he'd tear it down and load it up in the truck and, a couple of times when I got there early, I went in. We got up in the ring after the ring was in the afternoon, and I took his paces with him and everything. And Blackjack Mulligan was one of those guys that learned, really learned after his first matches. He came from Texas, such burn, and we we helped him get started in this. And uh, that's one of the guys that started in Minneapolis. There was a lot of guys, too. I, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I wrestled in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, when I was 19 years old under the name Nikolai Zolotov, of all things. It was at the time of the Sputniks. And, and, uh, and then the promoter in Detroit, which was too hard, after a couple of months, he said, I was only 18, and uh, he said, look, he says, you're going to be a good wrestler one of these days, And uh, but people say you look too young. Of course, I was too young. I was only 18 years old, for God's sakes. Didn't even have whiskers yet. But uh, I said, what about... I almost cried. I mean, that's how much I really wanted to be a professional wrestler. And... I, I asked Stu, uh, not Stu Hart, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I asked uh, and the local promoter, Bert Ruby, I said, look, how about if I, if I grow a beard and, and he says, and, and come back with the beard. I said, I looked older. He said, you know what? He says, this is the time of the Sputnik. This is the Sputnik. We're just starting to go around. It was the first 
satellite ever. It was from the Russians, and there was a lot of heat on the Russians. He says, how about if we we shave your head also and make a Russian out of you? I said, I'll do anything to wrestle. And and that's what we did. I became Nikolai Zolotov. They sent me to Texas. They sent me to St. Louis. And I wrestled in the Aquitennial uh, show in Minneapolis under Nikolai Zolotov. I wrestled with the young Red Bass team, for God's sakes, on, on, <laughs> on that show. And, wow. and that's, that is going back, I'm thinking, the year was maybe 1956 or 57. It's amazing that I can't believe I go that far back, for God's sake. But (laughs) in any case, I'm thinking, I'm sort of of, uh, decrying the the state of the business now, although I've already said it's a machine to print money, but it's it's not the same business that we were in. It's, it's taken away from the core of the people, I think. And I think that uh, if anybody had uh, the guts to do it, we, we could start it all over again. Uh, and we, it, it, we, we did it in Montreal as if there was nobody around, for God's sakes. We started uh, with, with French TV, and then we went to England. When, when, uh, I went to the French television station in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and I said, uh, when can you put on a wrestling show if we produce it here? They said, we don't have any spot. I said, how about Sunday morning at 11 o'clock? They, they, they laughed at me. They said, are you crazy, Mr. Rashan? They said, that nobody watches TV at, at 11 o'clock Sunday morning. Not only that, we don't go on the air till 11.30. I said, well, no wonder nobody watches TV. You're not even on the air. So I said, how about Sunday morning, 11 o'clock? He said, well, if you want to try it, he says, we'll do it. But we we can't guarantee anything. So we started at 11 o'clock. And you know what? It became the most watched program across Canada. And after that, we took it to Montreal, and we sent our, our wrestling show from Newfoundland all the way to British Columbia. And and uh, people watched it all over Canada. And I think if someone had the inclination to do that, it could be done again and start it and tell the people that they're not going to see any stuff that will insult the intelligence of the parents and it will not make the kids do bad things and have some sort of, for a while at least, and they will have some nice, clean, uh, you know, wholesome wrestling and talk about wrestling. And uh, I think it can be done again. But anyway, maybe I'm just dreaming, but I think it's still there. Somebody else mentioned that. I think. Yeah, anyway. I, I, I agree with you. I know Bruce and I have talked about it and. And uh, I agree with you. I know the some of the independent shows that uh, my wife and I go to here in Texas. Lots of times the people will walk up to me sitting in the bleachers or sitting in a chair watching the matches. They'll say, God, we wish real wrestling would come back. And it's not a knock on these independent guys. It's just the fact that they're not around enough people that understand that part of this business. And 
the protection that all of us gave it back in those days and the and the coddling we gave it in in protecting the business and making sure every match was the best it could be and i, I think that's uh um even though today they got a you know 300 producers or something with wwe and everybody's got a certain set of matches and they're doing it all and even with all that help they're not getting the job done that used to be and i think again those road trips and those sharing and healing hotel rooms to save money and doing all those things was part of that education you got in sort of the fraternity of of the boys you know and and i i really think that was uh, uh for me it was the education of a lifetime that allowed oh, me, me to, to get to work and 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 be with so many of the greats in this business and and to travel up and down the roads and hear their stories it's uh you know, it's like Paul said earlier in the show, he said even if he knew he was going to have to use those canes today, he still would have done it. I wouldn't trade my life for anything. The guys that I got to meet and, and be with and travel with, and, and and I know, Bruce, your family, most of your brothers feel the same way. And, and uh, Oh, yeah. It, it, it it's, just, uh... it's just a business that was was uh, uh, fun to be, and I, I know I, yeah, that was great. something. Yeah, Great Paul said something earlier it. about the about the traveling and the and the you know his wife waiting till then to meet him and getting married and it was like it was meant to be and always having fun and enjoying life and that's really what this business sort of taught you back then even though you had ups and downs of maybe leaving this territory and going to the next or getting fired or whatever the reasons may be going to the next territory you had some ups and downs but. The life that that's all part of life, man. That's part of life. That's what I mean. It's Absolutely. part of, of of traveling and being there and doing it. And and I agree. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But it is different today. And and I also agree that if somebody had the cojones to go out and give it a try again, that uh, uh, it would it, it wouldn't be that it, 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 it wouldn't be that hard to to beat what's out there right now. The big mistake these days is everyone's trying to copy the uh, WWE and uh, what they should be doing is trying to be uh, an alternative or something different, different than the WWE. Sure. And, and that was what it was like back in the day. Uh, every territory had a different style, you know, and that's what made it so good. And, and you know, I remember got, my dad would bring guys up from uh, Montreal or texas or minneapolis or tennessee or whatever and they would have a different style but they blended into calgary and it would uh enhance the style you know the japanese the british any of that and, and that's one of the things that's missing in wwe they got the same stagnant styles you know the same bookers same everything and you know it becomes tough to watch after a while you know there's nothing it always used to be a trip for me when a new heel or a face came into the territory and, you know, it would kind of add a new flavor to it, you know, and keep people kind of riveted to it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, listen, uh, may I ask a question from somebody that's uh, um, running this thing? Is it, uh, uh, where is this... uh, on the air, just around Calgary, is it? No, no. I think it's out of, out of New York. <laughs> if you can, it's, it's, uh, it's out of New York. It's actually, yeah, actually it's, 
It actually it's comes actually out of New York. From New York, but it's on the internet. It's worldwide. You can listen to this uh, radio show and these interviews uh, worldwide on the internet. Uh, you can also uh-huh. the the same number that everybody calls into. Uh, you have live listeners on the telephone tonight listening to the show, um, yeah. and then of course it goes into an archive feed where people 24 hours a day can download it. And 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 here I'm talking out. I don't know anything I'm talking about, but you can download it to an app and then put it on your smartphone or your Kindle or any of those kind of things you have and listen to it any place you want to. So it's a pretty effective way of getting, you know, to record some of the stories of the past and hear some of the guys of the past tell their stories. And and I think it's so important, you know, just like Baron Von Roschke and and Paul Butcher Vachon being at the Hall of Fame this year and Paul inducting Baron, uh, um, it's a way to keep records of the past that so many people today sort of want to be forgotten. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I'm i delighted that we have some legends on, like Paul and, and uh, Jim, you know, that are, uh, you know, bona fide uh, icons that, you know, people from the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, know all about, you know. And I'm sure that they'll be... Uh, fascinated just to hear remember, their stories and their perspectives. I, I, I remember, I, I'm glad somebody brought up the, the Baron again. I remember watching him wrestling and she to me the back and he's wrestling. He's actually shooting with these two guys and he's wrestling two brothers, I believe. I remember right. And they were trying to ham it up, and they they were uh, 190, maybe 200 pounds, and they thought they. I mean, one of them is supposed to stay outside, and he, for a yeah. while, and and then the Baron stretched his butt, and then he went after the other brother, and he beat them both inside 10 minutes, uh-huh. and and every once in a while, one of them went run in and try to act like a professional and try to kick the baron. <laughs> I remember that. And I was going to jump in there and kick the hell out of him. But in any case, the, the, the yeah, baron, the, the, the baron oh. did that. It was nice. It was nice oh. that he could, that he knew how to do that also. And, uh, yeah. of course. Yeah, that was a, that was, that was a thing to get the, that was the thing to build the crowds up. They'd offer them fifteen hundred dollars if they could stay in the ring with me, and uh, it was a little nerve-wracking for me. But uh, all, Who, all whose idea was that? Out, well, wasn't mine. No, <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a hunch it was the Mad Dog idea. But, yes, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. Uh, I was pretty was, sure too. Uh, yeah, Johnny Ruggio, who's the promoter, he went, he went, he went for it. And, Johnny Ruggio and Jack Briscoe. So I did it because I was a rookie and I didn't know any better. And uh, it was uh, it was uh, kind of it could get kind of heated because uh, the hometown hero would be out there with with this uh, yeah well really really good looking really good looking bald wrestler. And uh, sometimes they get mad when they uh, saw me throw somebody out of the ring and uh, they'd make a move towards the ring and. Uh, once in a while, there would be a riot. It would ensue. So uh, it, was, it was an adventure. 
Vern had some yeah, pretty uh, legitimate tough guys. I know. In the uh, back in the day, and uh, with you and Robinson and Ryan Gens and Chris Taylor and some of those yeah, guys are pretty uh, pretty legit. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, and, yes, indeed. Well, Stu did that uh, same. Uh, Stu did the same thing with uh, when he had uh, uh, superstar Graham first starting in the business. He took him around the loop a couple of times, challenging yep. the audience to arm wrestling. And of course, Superstar won every one of those. But it did get close at times with some of those big farm boys coming out of the audience and stepping in to the ring. Yeah, I remember Stu was, uh, I think one time, Superstar was a bit of a character too, but I think it was, uh, you had to uh, beat him within 10 seconds or the guy got 10,000 or something like that and was getting like about 8 or 9 seconds and Superstar, uh, I think, uh, uprooted the table and threw the guy down. And, uh, <laughs> sure. I think I think maybe that was was that something that was done quite a bit around the country maybe in the in the late fifties and sixties was that sort of thing because I remember my brother Kenny going to Portland Oregon and they did a thing with him up there in the sugar hold where you couldn't get out of the sugar hold if he put you in it and and Don Owens offered like a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars a night and and Kenny did it for four or five months up there every night you know somebody put up there $100 or whatever to attempt to get out of the sugar hold. Was that something yeah, that was done regular around the country? I mean, was that was that sort of a normal thing? Yeah, I remember the worst I saw was they had that damn wrestling bear up here, the damn, uh, I think, Dave McKegney, and uh, yeah, I don't know what the hell it was. Like. But, and he wrestled Sweet Daddy Seeky around the, the loop a couple of times. I remember some big, this big fat girl got in the ring. And I think she was maybe on her period or something, but the bear uh, <laughs> uh, tried to rape her or some damn thing, and uh, she was screaming, and all the fans were laughing, and I think Stu recognized there was a catastrophe about to happen, and uh, he had about four wrestlers and himself were pulling this big, fat girl who was screaming hysterically out from under the bear and the bear was trying to hump her or whatever the hell you know. <laughs> my dad was saying fatality on my hands sound more like students student yeah <laughs> <laughs> Baron, that that time when you did that for the and they then they brought people into the ring with you was that the only place you ever did that for that challenge like that? Yeah, that's the only place I ever did it. But I did it almost every night, and uh, they kept coming and coming, and I don't know. It, it finally, they finally stopped doing it. I guess the season was over, and then the next year they didn't didn't repeat it. But uh, we had some we had some classic adventures with that. Uh, one time, Johnny Valentine was my partner, and uh, the town bully had challenged me, and he got in the ring, and he's got a, a pair of pants on, on that are cut off just below the knees, and uh, uh, he's got them tied with a string. And uh, wow. Anyway, I, 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 I take the guy down, I pin him, and he's, uh, we're, we're, I'm, I'm done. With, I'm, 
I've got him on his back, and as he's rolling over, I jump up and uh, get my hand raised, whatever. And as I'm doing that, Johnny Valentine sneaks up behind him, and as he rolls over, he gets in the on his uh, hands and knees. He notices that the guy's pants are ripped in the back, so he take, takes his hands and he rips rips them completely off. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, the guy didn't have any uh, underwear on, so he was very very. Very, very embarrassed as he quickly escaped from the ring and ran out the out of the building. So there, there were some funny things happened with that. So anyway, so, um, guys, uh, I've been on here almost an hour and a half, and uh, I'm I'm going to go. I like to talk about wrestling, but before I go, I want to tell you one. One quick story about how I got the name the Butcher. Okay, is everybody ready for this? Yeah. In nineteen in nineteen sixty two, I stopped in Hawaii where Mad Dog was. I I was on my way to Australia, and uh, I was taking Mad Dog's place. He didn't want to go to Australia because he was having such a good time in. In, uh, in Honolulu, and I stopped there, and I wrestled um, uh, one match, and then I went on I went on for two and a half months to Australia, but I never came back from there until 1966. I was gone for four years. I wrestled pretty well all over the world, including... Um, Australia, New Zealand, India, Europe, and England, and all over. And then I, Mad Dog spoke to me in early 1966, and he said, you got to come back to the States, he says. And so I, he, he booked me in Kansas City for Geigel, and I come in there, and Mad Dog took me aside. He says, look, he says, ever since... I became the mad dog. He says, I've been making nothing but money. He says, we got to find you as some kind of animal name. He says, Paul Vashon is not going to work out. He says, so I'm thinking he's going to call me, you know, Paul the Bull or something like that. Uh, Paul the Bear. And he comes up with this. He says, I know it. He says, you're a really good animal name. We'll call you Paul the Pig. I said, please, Jesus. I said, I'm not going under Paul the Pig. The hell with you. <laughs> and then we both started laughing. <laughs> so we figured we'll, we'd come up with, with uh, some other. I said, find any kind of name. So we, we settled on the Butcher of Paris. So uh, it was fine for the first couple of weeks, but after a while, the immigration showed up, and they said, well, this guy is from Paris. Where the hell is this working visa from Europe, you know, and stuff like that. So we told them I was from Canada. They said, well, you still need papers. So Geigel got me some papers, and we dropped the the Paris part, and that's how come I've been the butcher all along. And and 
that's my funny story for tonight. Now, listen, guys, um, I I know it's still early for you guys, wherever you are. You're not on the East Coast like I am. I'm in uh, central Vermont, about uh, uh, maybe 30 miles from where I was raised on a farm. And it reminds me that by this time, 1030, it's 1030 over here. Uh, it's about my bedtime. So I'm going to let you go and say over wild to all of you, and I hope to see you again. I'm sure I will. I'm going to the see you in April. What's see that? you in April. We'll see you in yes. April at the CAC. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very well, much. For, thank you, and, Paul. And, it's been an uh, uh, honor to talk to you, and I uh, love your stories. Uh, thanks very much, yeah. and uh, I'll look forward to another time. Hey, and Paul, this is, this is Johnny. This is Johnny Mantell telling you from Texas. Knowing now that you had one of your first matches with Red Bastine, we'd love to see you at the Red Bastine Texas Shootout them sometime. You're always welcome. We'd love to have you. That sounds Paul. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Paul, this is the Baron. Paul, this yes, is the Baron. Baron. Yes. You know what your brother wanted to call me? What? <laughs> Baron. Von Pumpkin. <laughs> well, that's a true. That's a true story. He wanted me to be Baron Von Pumpkin. And would I have been good no, for I Halloween know. gimmick, I guess. You know. Yeah. You know what? I thought off wrong, and I don't think he was wrong. I mean, just imagine if any would anything in the Von Pumpkin or Paul the Pig wrestled. Remember him? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. Thank you very much. Good night, Paul. Thank you. Good night, Paul. Paul. Yeah. God bless nice you. talking to all of you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye. The Hall of Famer, okay. Paul the Butcher Vashon, and thank you so much for being on with us to Paul tonight, Paul. It was great hearing from you, and I do look forward to seeing you again at the uh, Hall of Fame in in May. So. Uh, God bless and go to and get some sleep tonight. <laughs> hey, I, I'm going to get back. I'm going to go back since uh, uh, Mr. Unger and, and Baron's still on. I, I'd love to. Again, I I never got to work the AWA territory. Uh, um, was there was there something about the AWA territory that did turn out those guys there for a while? Was it? Uh, uh, was it Vern that did it? Was it somebody else within the organization? Uh, um, what 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 made that territory what it was up there? Um, I think Vern always had his eye open for talent, and, and uh, you know if somebody uh, wanted got a, made contact with him, he would uh, he would give him a chance, and he he had his eye on uh, amateur wrestling around the area that uh, the AWA covered, and he'd find out about out about people and. He was uh, glad to break them in and turn them loose, and uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to be one of those people. I was the only one who was training when he trained me, and then later he started that camp where, uh, I don't know. which was which turned out a lot of guys. He got a lot of guys from the uh, uh, the Olympics in uh, Munich, and uh, uh, brought them in. And uh, Kenny Patera is one of those guys, and that's where he. Met uh, Billy Robinson and Chris Taylor and uh, Chris Taylor and uh, later Brad Ringens and and 
All those, all those guys, uh, Ric Flair, Jimmy Brunzel, Paul Persman, Buddy, Buddy Rose Paul was Persman, in there. Yeah, Buddy Rose. He, he used to be my ring helper when I was setting up the ring, old Paul. Anyway, uh, yeah, it was. Wow. Uh, it was a good and, time. And uh, Vern, Vern did a good job of booking too. He he had good matches that were well promoted and built up. That, uh, was the you know, that it amounted to something. Was Vern the booker, or did he have uh, guys uh, matchmaking? Or uh, who, he, who he had, uh, no, he didn't. Uh, he didn't pay any extra for book, book me, but he he always had uh, guys coming over, and uh, I don't know how often we, we did it. We we'd come over and maybe once a month uh, uh, suggest things, and, uh, da, 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 da. and uh, I they the seem to be pretty. They seem like they're pretty solid. Uh, the style of wrestling, there wasn't too many gimmicks, as I recall. You know, they didn't have like too much hot shotting or too many, you know, no, chic cool. and uh, you know that uh, like at that time Eddie Farhat and those guys were doing all the the bloodbaths. Yeah, um, he was he was part of it was they they ran all the big towns uh, like every three three or four weeks so. Uh, yeah. You didn't uh, get overexposed, and you had uh, three weeks to uh, build it up on TV and shoot, shoot something, some kind of angle or something, and uh, you know, the guys would talk about it for two or three weeks before you go in, and, of course, there'd be returns and da 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 different kinds of matches and different kinds of combinations from singles to tag teams to six-mans to, to uh, lumberjacks to, you know, and all the way up to... And finally, at the end of the end of the year, they'd uh, wind up with a big cage match, and then maybe towards the end of the season, they'd bring in uh, uh, Andre the Giant, and they'd have battle royals all around the territory. And so he, he was a smart, smart businessman in that way. And and uh, they paid pretty good, so we got most of the guys that came stayed for a while, and and most of the guys uh, could. Uh, Work really well, you know. You can you can almost count on whoever you work with being a really good worker, really really good storyteller, and we always uh, seem to get the job done with this, telling the story. And that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, and in Winnipeg, we used to shoot a, a complete set of interviews for for four weeks worth uh, before all the wrestlers left town. The following morning was TV time, and we shot all the interviews. And then on the wrestling show, they were locally inserted interviews that uh, focused specifically on the matches coming up in Winnipeg on a specific date. And that did make a big difference, I think, to the to the local promotion in Winnipeg. And uh, they were able that they uh, videotaped all the. Winnipeg matches, and occasionally, if there <clears throat> was an angle that uh, needed it, we were able to show it in the local TV show, and that always helped build it up. But we we were doing very very good houses there at that time. Well, you know, it's it's funny you say that. Uh, I know when I started in Louisiana for Bill Watts and Leroy McGurk, you know, they they did interviews every other Wednesday in Shreveport that followed the local TVs and all the different local places and sort of did the same thing. So I wonder, 
you know where that where that started i mean did that uh, i guess that uh uh started back in the day and somebody sort of taught Stu and Leroy and those guys how to do that i mean or was that just something that popped up i guess when tv started well, I don't recall Stu doing locals in specific markets. He uh, used the whole territory on one set, and that was Stampede Wrestling. And <clears throat> it was shown in Saskatoon, Regina, and Edmonton, and Calgary, yeah, yeah. and God knows where else. Back in those days, I don't think they even cut promos. Uh, there were a few because Archie uh, Goldie was really good at cutting promos. Oh, they do days. they do interviews on the show, but at they ringside, like, yeah, yeah, but they wouldn't actually yeah. talk about we're coming to nope. Saskatoon or nope. Regina or Edmonton. Yeah. They just sort of uh, nope. the show was sort yeah. of like uh, it wasn't as commercial as. It uh, later on became, but I think Stu yeah. was one of the first territories that filmed from the uh, actually from the arena back in those days. Most of the shows were all uh, studio things where they uh, had some guy getting squashed, and then they'd have mostly interviews. And but I think Stu back in the sixties. He found it cheaper. He, he would just shoot his uh, live shows from Calgary, and uh, and most of the fans thought he was, or most of the uh, other promoters he thought he was not giving them something that they should be paying for, you know. But uh, that was 15 years before Vince ever uh, did that, and everyone was hailing Vince as uh, a genius when he started doing Monday Night Raw and that kind of thing. But Stampede's TV format was like that back in the 60s, and it turned out to be pretty good. And he was selective uh, in which matches he put on TV. I remember quite often Ed Whelan would say, we joined this match in progress, uh, we're 10 minutes in, and then you'd go... Or oh, yeah, yeah. the other way around, we're running out of time, so you'll have to come to the Victoria Pavilion to see the oh, yeah, matches. You leave him hanging, and uh, you know, quite often use the sizzle to sell the steak. You know, you show them just enough to whet their appetites, and then cut away and say, uh, you know, you guys missed a hell of a barn burner, but uh, you know, uh, come down to the arenas if you want to see uh, these guys in action, that type of thing. You know, but. What well, was uh, just, Go ahead. What? TV like uh, was his studio or was his uh, live shows or? Well, uh, early on we uh, did a studio show. Yeah. Uh, we did a studio show and then they uh, bicycled that around all the all the big towns. They they did it. Uh, they did it in Minneapolis in the afternoon and then we'd either run St. Paul or Minneapolis that night we'd have a house show and so the excitement generated at that studio was was uh, was, was magnified and uh, uh, the announcer would say and uh, you can see them live at the night and blah 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 and you know get your tickets now the walk don't run and all that stuff but anyway uh, we'd do uh, off the uh, TV tapes the studio show they, they would uh Bicycle those shows around to all the home, all the all the towns, Chicago, uh, 
Chicago, Denver, uh, Milwaukee, Omaha, Milwaukee, Winnipeg. uh, Winnipeg, we had to have Canadian content, so I don't know. We did a TV up there, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and and, uh, And, and, the Canadian content rules, we were required to have a certain percentage of locally produced, and uh, the interview sections qualified under that percentage. So uh, when, uh, when the crew came up from Minneapolis, they always carried a box of videotape with them, but we inserted the locals, and it was locally produced product, yeah, and yeah. that's why they were able to get past the CRTC. So I remember uh, when uh, Vince, started, when, yeah, remember when Vinny started up in Canada, the same, he had Maple Leaf, he had to have it produced in Toronto, and Jack Tunney and a bunch of other... Yeah. Artificial additives to make it look like it was a Canadian production or something, but but I don't think they have to do that anymore. But. No, and one of the things too, I think a lot of people never recognize that when uh, very often uh, the for the Minneapolis TV show, the jobbers would come in from Winnipeg, and uh, then that would qualify as well as Canadian content. Uh, on the Minneapolis show, and uh, yeah. that was uh, every, every a young kid. kid. A young kid we brought in from Winnipeg regularly for those shows was somebody named Roddy Piper, if you've ever heard of him. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was Roddy like then? Was he, he was pretty skinny uh, then, wasn't he? He, he was, was about 135 pounds, uh, soaking was he, wet. Was he was he called Piper then, or? Rodney yeah, that. Uh, uh, no, uh, he. Uh, was he doing the bagpipes? Uh, there's an interesting or... story. He he does actually play the bagpipes very well, and he one year he was the lead piper in the Rose Bowl parade, and they called him Roddy the Piper. And then through high school, he used the name Roddy Piper when uh, he he tried a little amateur boxing and stuff like that. And uh, his trainer was a local fellow by the name of Dave Piper from Winnipeg. And that's where he picked up the name. So he's had it all along. The the tomb's name goes way back when, when he was a really young kid. Was he, he had a pretty good personality, Roddy. Was he, did he cut promos back in those days or did they even allow him or is he just getting squashed back then or? Well, we we uh, ran a small operation out of Winnipeg at that time. Al Tomko, uh, who was the Winnipeg promoter for Minneapolis, uh, ran where we ran shows in in Dauphin and Brandon, Manitoba, and places like that. So Al set up his own TV studio, and we did uh, interviews in there. And that's really where Roddy learned how to use the microphone. And right from day one, he was fantastic. I mean, that was just a, a gift he was born with, uh, and uh, he never slowed down after that. And uh, once uh, the promoters in uh, the territories in the U.S. found out what he was able to do on uh, selling on the mic, uh, he had it made. Where did he get his break in L.A. or Portland or... I think it was L.A. at first where uh, uh, he worked, uh, uh, who was it in there? Uh, the Guerrero. 
Yeah, he worked yeah, for Mike but, LaBelle there. He came in as a as a young yeah. kid in L.A. and and uh, they really gave him a big push there and and uh, uh, made him work for it. I mean, he was wrestling probably two or three night times a night and managing other people and and uh, oh, Mike really put Roddy through the ropes out there. I remember they used to send us programs back in the day. All the promoters used to send programs from their territory. All the other promoters and. I remember seeing Roddy's programs back in the day, and I don't think he was, I doubt if he weighed more than 160. You know, he looked pretty skinny then, yeah. but uh, I've always intrigued, you know, and uh, uh, I think I first met Roddy in the late 70s in Portland. He was working for Don Owen then, and he's still pretty skinny then, but he had a, a lot of personality, though, a lot of color, you know, and. Uh, a pretty good guy too, Roddy. You know, uh, I was always happy to see he uh, took off with Vinny later on. You know, because uh, he, he had a lot of heart and soul, old Roddy. So. Yeah. Hey, and I got, another I one got, of the guys that. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I got to tell everybody we're uh, about 15 minutes from the end of the show, so we're going to start tidying up. But I will say. We brought up Roddy, and you guys talked about it. And I'll tell you, again, I was so fortunate when I broke in in Los Angeles. Roddy was there and would take me to buildings early and work out with me. And, and uh, I don't know where he got it. I don't know if it came from there. And, you know, when you're talking about him starting there or maybe going to L.A., but I know he told me as an 18-year-old kid about doing interviews, you need to read the newspaper and need to find some current events and, Always tie your interviews, no matter who you're working with or or what the match may be. Tie that tie the current events in with your match, so the people at home know you're relevant for today. And that was something that stuck with me a lot through my career that Roddy taught me. Well, he gave you good yeah, advice. That, that's the way it works. You gotta you gotta you gotta know know uh, a lot about everything and be able to encapsulate it within two minutes and. And start to tell the story that way, and to tell the rest of the story in the ring, and finish it up, and then come back next week and continue telling the story, and continue telling the story until the story is told, and you start with a new guy. And you can't and I, I remember all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I remember one fellow who used to run out of things to say, and he'd just turn around and say, "And that's all the people need to know." <laughs> <laughs> Marty O'Neill made me keep saying that and saying that because uh, I, he, he actually caught me not knowing what to say, and I, that's what I said and walked away. And he, he got a big kick out of that and laughed and laughed. And he wanted me to do it every week, so I did it for a few weeks, and pretty soon I was stuck with doing it. So yeah, now I gladly. Well, that do became it. your trademark. That's right. <laughs> better than better well, that, than being able to work. <laughs> well. That, let me let me just say that uh, uh, for in behalf of myself and and Bruce, uh, we want to thank everybody that was on the show tonight. And and uh, I know Paul's uh, uh, gone to gone to bed and and is down from being with us right now. But uh, I sure want to thank him for being on and the stories and the and the honest opinions from him. And and uh, uh, Baron. Jim, I, I, I want to thank you again for being on tonight, and i got to tell you what an honor it was for me to be around you this year at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and, and hearing the stories about your career and, 
and being an amateur guy, much like I was, uh, I, I always enjoy hearing those stories. And so I want to thank you, one amateur guy to another, for uh, uh, making this business even more real than than a lot of people thought it was back in those days. Well, I, I always had a good good time doing what I did, and uh, I enjoyed my amateur career, and I, I enjoyed my professional career. career and if in uh, any way at all I influenced or helped somebody, I'm happy for that too. So, thank you very much for your yeah, hard work. Yeah, thank you, uh, Jim. I, uh, as I said to you last time, uh, I've never heard a bad word said about you. I always. Uh, heard great things about you from so many of the guys that uh had worked with you uh and uh and uh it's, it's an honor to have you on here and uh, uh thanks very Thank much and pr- hopefully maybe another time we'll get you on again and get some more minneapolis stories so oh it's nice hearing from jim because i haven't uh, talked to him for about 35 years and uh I've been waiting on waiting the phone, Murph. I know. Phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way the business uh, goes though. So. How, how are Gordon and June doing? Murph? Who? Gordon and June. I don't know them. <laughs> Gordon okay. Is that Gordon Nelson or no, no, not Russell. Never mind. <laughs> I probably got the names wrong. Yeah. Two, two of my dog's friends in uh, in Winnipeg. Oh, I see, yeah. Uh, you do know them. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know them, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of lost here. I don't know how to help and jump yeah, in. Yeah, I was at the move. Okay. Okay. <laughs> He was ribbing me here. Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't think I was, but okay. Come <laughs> on. Hey, well, Baron, thanks so much for calling in tonight, and and please let's okay. do this again. We'd love to have you back on. Thanks, Jim. Uh, all the best, Jim. Okay, goodbye, guys, and uh, have a good night. Bye. Goodbye to all you the fans. Hopefully, we'll see you in Vegas in April. It'd be great to see you. Well, it'd be, be nice if uh, I can make it, so we'll see. Okay. All right. See you guys. Yeah, take care. Good night. Good night, Jim. Uh, Thank you. Hey, Merv, I, I got to come back to you and say I, I, I'll be honest with you. I'd love to I'd love to have you come back, or and, and I'm sure Bruce would. I'd love to have you come back and tell some more stories of the AWA days and some of the interaction between the AWA days and some of the Canadian stuff that was going on. I, I think Merv's one of the few, Johnny, that Merv's one of the few that's uh, done AWA and Calgary, so not too many guys yeah. that uh, have that yeah. uh, background. So, yeah. but yeah. Well, I, I look at uh, when I mentioned Roddy Piper uh, when we had the AWA and Winnipeg had its own little operation where we worked the small towns. But, was that uh, other shyster uh, Tony Candelo in there? Then, <laughs> uh, well, he was one of the workers at the time. But uh, you know, when you had uh, the Von Steigers uh, topping in oh, yeah. Calgary, uh, uh, Lauren uh, Carlett, he came from Winnipeg. 
Gordy Nelson, one of the all-time greats in pro wrestling, especially down south, he was a Winnipegger, and uh, oh yeah, and then, Gordy uh, and Moose Morowski or Stan Avenger. Moose Morowski, God, what a name from the past! What a great guy! And he also wrestled as the Black Avenger for a number of years. And we had also coming out of Winnipeg uh, was George Gordienko. Uh, oh yeah, one of the shooter and Oli Oli yeah. Olson was. Yeah, yeah, they had another they had, one. They had a pretty good uh, some tough some tough bastards coming out of Winnipeg. All, all those guys I mentioned, Gordienko and Nelson and. Ole Olson and some of them are all pretty tough, you know. They wouldn't want to, uh, you know. Well, and that them. that Tony Candelo always did the northern tour of the native reserves in far northern Manitoba, where you had to wait till the ice froze up so you could go across the lakes and go to the reservations. But some of the guys who went on those tours, uh, Christian and Edge and Chris Jericho. They, you know, they really earned their spurs because you had to sleep in high school yeah. gyms overnight and sleeping bags and uh, and well, yeah, uh, it, you had to fly in the cargo plane and sleep, you know, and the, the wrestling mats and stuff were on it. And but, a lot of it was done by by road uh, and not by cargo plane. I mean, they really did it the hard way. And when it is 40 below and you're stuck in some small town uh, with a total population of 150, uh, then you know you're at the end of the world. Yeah, it was a pretty rough place. Uh, northern Manitoba is out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, yeah. Just native Indian reservations and all that type yeah. of thing. You know? but, but when you see the names of the guys that went through and did that tour and later became big names... Is you know they didn't start at the top. Uh, they had to go and uh, you know in some places set up rings like Jim mentioned and uh, uh, you know uh, referee some of the matches and ref wrestle in them as well. And uh, did you so, did yours? You, you set the rings up the odd time, Merv, didn't you? And, and, oh yeah, uh, and you did too, Johnny. I imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's part of the education. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know any other way to say that. It was just part of the education, knowing, you know, every little step that there was. I mean, uh, uh, you know, if you're a butcher in the butcher department, you know, you, you have to know how to sharpen the knives and sweep the floor and do it all, not just cut meat. And, and I think that was, again, I think that was, you know, and I'm glad Murph said that about Christian and Edge and some of those guys because I think that that's what is missing with some of the guys today is they didn't get that, full knowledge of this business that uh you know you got when you had a when you were riding in the car with a paul oh, yeah, it was called deuce pan you know just, yeah you know you, you know, and he did yeah, you know yeah. they would tell you to sit in the back seat and shut up and listen and oh and yeah there a little was bit no of problem, humility no problem with that yeah no problem with yeah. that yeah uh, it made you it made you respectful of your elders you know? <laughs> absolutely well when you mentioned setting up the rings uh uh, in the small spot shows around Calgary, the ring crew was Stu and Merv. <laughs> yeah, those rings were heavy bastards too. They were yeah, uh, oh yeah, uh, big heavy. Uh, you know, two guys that you'd be 
you know, sweat your ass off dragging it in and hoping you didn't have to uh, go up a set of stairs with it or some of that yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, guys, we got five minutes left. Merv, I'm going to let you uh, say your good nights and goodbyes. And, and, again, I can't wait till we do this again. I have so many questions uh, hearing this about uh, the AWA and that part of the country that I never got to see. And, and now hearing Jim say that uh, Buddy Rose was – his partner setting up the ring. Got to have so many more questions. So uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you for being on for my part tonight. Thank you for being on with us. It's been a great pleasure, especially talking to Butcher and uh, Baron, because, uh, you know, in this business, you make a lot of friends. And, you know, sometimes friends pass through your life and you don't necessarily remember them. But in wrestling, I think friendships are built that lasts forever and that that's what stuck with me because i see all the names of the people and even though it's somebody you haven't seen for 20 25 years you still consider it, uh, he was a nice guy he was a friend yeah yeah well said okay thank you very much for having me anytime just give me a holler and i'll fire away again thanks very much Merv. all the very best okay. and i'll look forward to it Good night. Thanks, Merv. Good night. Bruce, I don't know what to tell you. We've done another two hours tonight, and again, some great guests and some great stories that, you know, like I've told you, you know, we're we're sort of documenting the history of the business here, telling these stories and having guys say stuff, and, and uh, um, I, I don't know if you could get any better. Two true Hall of Famers on tonight, Jim and, and Paul and, and – uh, two class act gentlemen and two tough guys in the ring. I I don't know what more you could ask for. Yeah, I'm I'm delighted, you know, uh you know, and last week, you know, in case some of the listeners weren't aware we had Terry Funk and Harley Race and Rick Flair and uh a few others on, so I'm really delighted with the uh you know the guests we've been having and I'm uh Expecting some other guys that are supposed to be some interesting uh, legendary types coming on in the next little while. So I'd I'd like to thank you, Johnny. You do a hell of a job uh, keeping the uh, conversation going, and uh, you know it's a real pleasure to you know kind of be on the radio with you too. And I'd like to thank you for that. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it, and I will tell you that. Last week's show, the Terry Funk show, than any other show on this network, and and uh, uh, it and it can only grow from here, getting the word out and letting people hear it. And again, if they're true wrestling people, the stories and the things that you hear on this show are are part of the lure and part of the history of this business. That if we don't document it and get it down. It'll be long forgotten, and my my goodness, the the so uh, again, I have to thank Bruce Hart and everybody connected with the with the Heartbeat Radio Network for giving me the opportunity. A, a cowboy from the north central part of Texas, uh, the pride of Montague County, uh, being on this show and and helping and and getting these guys on and off and. For me, it's a privilege being on with some of the true
true Hall of Famers. I know that last week uh, we had three people that are in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, and this week we had two people that are in the real Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And, of course, with Bruce being on, his dad being in the Hall of Fame, it's a family affair. So I want to thank you uh, from right here. I want to thank everybody listening to Stampede, the old Stampede Radio, Heartbeat Radio, Bruce Hart and Johnny Mantell signing off saying thank you so much for listening. All the best. Thank you.